Jason Ananda Josephson Storm, Professor of Religion and Chair of Science and Technology Studies at Williams College, talks to find out why about his latest book, Metamodernism, The Future of Theory. A thought-provoking and inspiring revision of the current theoretical systems of analysis in humanities and social sciences, his ideas enrich our understanding of Web 2 and Web 3 implications in our social world as he paves a new way forward for theory. this interview by asking Professor Josephson Storm to explain the theory of social kinds and the need for this theoretical shift. For a long time, the humanities and social sciences, particularly the social sciences, were dominated by a model uh, known as methodological individualism. The idea was, and it was totally sensible, uh, that any kind of description within the humanities and social sciences needed to default to the decision-making or the attitudes of a particular individual. Now, that model, methodological individualism, has kind of run aground. Why is that the case? Um, it had a problem with things like, for instance, like groups. Uh, companies were really hard to explain in terms of methodological individualism. It had a terrible predictive power. Uh, it tended to then try and focus societal change on the individual level. So instead of grappling with big systems, it tended to try and change individual choices. Uh, and we see all the messes that resulted from that you know, failures to, to, for example, get climate change resistance and, you know, initiatives off the ground because it all get targeted the individual consumer or predictive failures, uh, pre failures to predict stock market crashes or whatever. So this whole model of methodological individualism is, wasn't completely wrong, but it turned out to be hugely incomplete. There are a lot of things it didn't capture. The only alternative uh, on offer for a long time was something called holism. And holism tended to imagine society as this grand organic whole, larger than the individual, and almost like a, a, a layer or a structure over and beyond the individual, uh, which somehow the individual was being shaped or formed by. But that, that didn't explain very much either. Uh, people tended to essentialize societies as big, huge things, or to imagine that uh, economic shifts, for example, necessarily meant ideological shifts. This was the old Marxist dogmatism about uh, the superstructure being determined by the base. Again, not wrong, uh, but very incomplete and not very explanatory or predictive. So you propose a different level of analysis now with social kinds. What are social kinds? Social kinds are you know, one of the weird things or the interesting things about humans and other social entities is that we have the capacity to create things that have powers and capacities that we ourselves don't have. So, for example, we were talking just before we started uh, about the movie Her uh, and, you know, the creation of a kind of artificial intelligent uh, woman or, you know, even uh, that's science fiction, but even, you know, my Siri phone, you know, we have the power to create a sort of robotic entity that has certain kinds of properties that can talk to us in certain ways. Or, you know, on a more mundane level, we, we can create not just institutions and organizations, but also artifacts. And my minimal term for this is kind of social kinds. And it lets us see that in, if we're going to do social explanation, uh, if you want to explain, for example, let's say the Supreme Court, you can't explain the Supreme Court if you think that all of its attributes 
are just the features of nine people and their attitudes. At point of fact, there's a vast institutional structure that's necessary to understand, explain the Supreme Court that goes beyond any individual. And that includes objects as well as people. Uh, includes texts, includes organizations, it includes all these other things. What is the advantage of social kinds? It lets us also understand non-human social animals and creatures. So we get to see how the social is not uh, a social level up and over the material level, but is actually materialized in materialized signs, like ant trails uh, that communicate information to each other, or like ant hive. All these kind of things begin to show us how there are these social kinds. So social kinds include social roles, they include organizations, uh, and they include artifacts. And what they share is that they're social in a particular way, which is to say social not in contrast to cultural or political, but social as in socially constructed. Um, when it comes to methodological howlists that we mentioned earlier, uh, how uh, social kinds theory uh, shifts from that perspective? Uh, the people who have tended to be methodological holists have imagined static social structures. They've assumed that tradition is the norm and that the thing to be explained is discontinuity, uh, is rupture, is change. So I argue that social kinds are processes, but more than that, they represent moments of stability or temporary stability in this continual unfolding processual world that we're all participants in. Things are constantly changing, but we're able to coordinate our conversations with each other because things aren't changing all at the same speed and all equally quickly. So we can all agree, roughly agree, you know, when we're talking about, I don't know, Tesla automobiles, that we're, we're talking about a shared set of objects, even if the properties of a given Tesla in terms of what it can do, how fast it can drive, how big its batteries are change over time, uh, even as the meaning and boundaries of the Tesla corporation might change depending on who's in charge. All those things are changing, but there are various sorts of things that stabilize them. And so social kinds are a way to think about those kinds of temporary stability that cluster together in what we could call the social world created by not just humans, but other kinds of social animals. How you reach to that point to look at the contemporary social world through a complete new lens? And, and with such a freedom, too. You know, I it's a two-step process. Uh, sometimes we need to do demolition work at the very kinds and categories which we find ourselves caught or trapped in. So sometimes it's very important to actually, I mean, I, I spend a whole chapter uh, trying to teach how to do that kind of deconstructive work precisely for that freeing purpose. But then having done that, uh, the social kinds theory that we talk about uh, is part of that steps of building back outward from that. I've noticed that you spend a great deal of time in the book analyzing the, the theory of knowledge, arguing for cautious skepticism and the need for what you call humble emancipatory knowledge. Can you talk to us more about this line of thought? Hegel describes the movement of thought, uh, what sometimes gets called the Hegelian dialectic, uh, in terms of three phases. Uh, a limited abstraction, negational moment, and then the negation of the negation, which is which is the whole movement in, on which the system turns. What what Hegel I think um, shows us, not that I, I want us to become Hegelians in some grand sense, but I think what he's got exactly right is that one way out of a certain kind of what he called skepticism that can hurl anything into the void uh, is to figure out how to pivot on it. In other words, not to try and restore the false abstraction or positivity as if we didn't know better, right? The goal is to not to just construct as if deconstruction never happened, but rather figure out what we can do uh, in, in such a way, he calls it like suspending the contradictions uh, unresolved and then rotating the system on its axis. So in, in my case, what I wanted to do was kind of grant the critique and then figure out you know, what next? Yes, uh, post-colonial theory was right to identify uh, a whole range of suffering in the world. Um, 
critical race, critical gender theory. I love that stuff. I read that stuff deeply. It, it calls out all these problems. The question, though, is how to not merely terminate in the recognition of human suffering, but start from human suffering and try and figure out how we can build something better that can help uh, the suffering that's going on in the world, for instance. And by doubting doubt, I want to argue, uh, it takes us not back to some artificial notion of confidence about true and certain knowledge, but rather to a kind of humble emancipatory knowledge that lets us turn skepticisms into cautions and then allow us to move forward. So um, in one way, the, the whole architecture of the book is broadly Hegelian in that way. It's a negation of the negation. And it's an attempt to kind of move out of a moment. You know, I'm a, you know, an old punk rocker, an old goth. Um, you know, I'm not like trying to force us into a, a kind of cruel, optimistic cheer, but rather recognize that even in the darkest days of the world, uh, we can find glimmers of, of better futures that we can steer towards. They can be the candlelights uh, which guide our ship out of the darkness. And we need to hold on to those uh, even as we work very hard to, to work toward them. Uh, so uh, in that respect, the project is an attempt to look for those beacons and try and navigate according to them. Um, but there, it's not an attempt to deny the darkness in which we find ourselves often in this world. Speaking of which, what gives you hope? Many people are coming to recognize the unsatisfactoriness of our societies as a whole, whether that is recognizing the reality of systematic forms of injustice or, uh, you know, I'm heartened to see that, that people are beginning to track that more, uh, or whether it's recognizing anthropogenic climate change or whether it's recognizing uh, the various forms of inequality, both economic and otherwise, that go through all of our societies. When I talk to folks, when I talk to my students, when I talk to some of my colleagues, especially uh, people at my level and, and, and younger, uh, a lot of people are full of a passionate desire to make change and to, to build a better world. And I think uh, I feel more confident than I have in some previous years that, that this conversation, this important conversation about you know, how do we build better uh, is actually happening in many different layers of the society. We're not always coming to the same conclusions, um, but, and that's part of the, you know, we need to think of something uh, you know, plural in its product. Um, but I, I, I find that heartening. There are these sort of glimmers of uh, more idealized futures that I can see kind of peeking out uh, in our otherwise apocalyptic uh, historic moment. Uh, I, I don't see, you know, political cynicism, which which I think uh, has come to define the American uh, American life, you know, from at least, you know, my period of consciousness from the, you know, 90s through the uh, early 2000s, for instance, you know, dominated by a kind of political cynicism that was often very, very self-sabotaging. Uh, and now at least people may be uh, more open to uh, uh, different kinds of possibilities, even if we're not there yet. Uh, and so I'm a little bit hopeful that we can collectively, internationally, Uh, according to the new lines of communication that are made possible across the globe by things like Zoom, by things like, um, you know, the web that binds us digitally together, um, that different kinds of communities can be formed and different kinds of alliances and ways uh, we can work together toward building better futures. What's your view on technology and especially new technology, Web 2 and Web 3? I'm neither, a, let's say, technological utopian in that I don't think technology solves everything, but I'm far from a Luddite. I'm not anti-technology uh, on its own. And one of the you know, central things, is, as you've observed, is this transformation of Web 2.0 and a new relationship that is possible with uh, the so-called consumers of knowledge. A, a better and even more dialogical relationship is possible. The, the digital medium has allowed me to be um, more directly accessible to people The public availability of information is one of the huge changes in, in our system, and um, it has two sides to it. On the one hand, uh, it makes people much more susceptible to propaganda because uh, it allows them to cordon off uh, themselves off from the kind of information they don't want to hear and just see you know, the kind of information that they do. But on the other hand, uh, it permits a kind of openness and free flow of knowledge that I think is incredibly valuable and useful. 
Can you speak more about your understanding of digital fluency? How does it look like or should look like in terms of uh, media literacy and beyond? I'm part of the very early uh, computer generation. I'm one of the oldest end of that computer generation, but I always, my dad was a computer scientist. I grew up with computers, uh, et cetera. And I think that there's, a, but there's been a shift from a generation of passive consumption around the television as its primary model, in which what people are mostly doing was absorbing what unidirectional information flows, and then to a period of early uh, internet where there was a, a, these micro communities of exchange uh, and there was a plethora of information out there to, to now a point where you can produce uh, more dialogical encounters uh, uh, on the web. But I think that the tools for educating students about those options haven't necessarily kept up. Um, you know, I find students have trouble distinguishing between good and bad sources of information that they find online. So, you know, they're, they're literate in some limited sense. Uh, and, and then also, even the ones that are able to distinguish between good and bad information often are not being trained in how to produce uh, content for these medium, which are very increasingly important. I think that there are ways in which the educational system is only belatedly, and now I'm seeing people start to do this, but but much, uh, but but we're not up to speed there. Um, teach students how to a understand uh, and consume the information that's available out there, and figure out what's useful and relevant, and vet it in a certain way. Second, figure out how to produce it, and third, uh, in even a more sophisticated way, how to make sense of the vast data that's out there. So there's also a whole realm, you know, data science, etc. Uh, and even in my colleagues, there's been a gesture toward big data, uh, digital humanities. A lot of that, they don't even know what they're doing. They just think if they've got numbers, that, you know, they can say something about it. And you know, I think 90% of that stuff is just junk, but if done well, there's a potential to do a lot of really fabulous work. I would think of um, a kind of digital fluency as the capacity to do some version of all three of those. Have a sense of critical skill in assimilating data and vetting it, skill in producing a new content, and third, able to do research to, to formulate uh, kind of more grand reorientations to, to subject matter. The other thing I would add uh, is that uh, a lot of the academic disciplines are based on models that are uh, legacies of the 19th century uh, or an early 20th century professionalization. You know, academic journals that are locked up behind paywalls that nobody can have access to, or the presumption that um, you know the kind of knowledge that we're producing uh, is totally you know every every academic discipline almost always claims that it's like the best discipline in some way or another, and often in total ignorance of what's going on in adjacent disciplines that are often making similar or, or complementary or contradictory insights. And I think. That whole legacy of institutions, uh, academic silos, if you will, we need to chip away at that. We need to find ways to bridge it, to, to even demolish it. It's just based on uh, a very outdated model of what not only the academic enterprise looks like, but also, uh, according to the theory that I'm articulating, the very kinds of social kinds that, that I'm arguing for cross-cut the academic disciplines and are not reducible to one of them or, or the other one. And so, you know, economics will turn out often to be relevant to sociology and, and anthropology and culture forms will be relevant to, the, to that. And human biology sometimes is relevant to your study and then literature you know like all of these uh, academic disciplines that are often considered separate uh, are treating similar kinds of subjects that are often overlapping and would be much better if they could be taken in uh, together in some more robust way you deal a lot with the issue of the academic enterprise and the way knowledge is produced currently in humanities what is your intention there in this book i want to make the case that uh, we should understand, or we could understand, the purposes of the humanities and social sciences, at least, as being directed toward a kind of human flourishing, uh, necessarily perhaps an interspecies or multispecies flourishing, but centrally a, a notion of human flourishing and helping people figure out how to live a life worth having lived, how to, you know, so I'm putting together a little bit of uh, critical theory and, and virtue ethics and, and trying to think about, you know, what it would look like. Uh, and I think in that case, you can see why the old academic uh, disciplines don't make sense anymore, and in fact, 
why our particular moment, our historical moment, um, needs a different set of skills than the historical moment in, the, in which the academic disciplines were formulated. Or, you know, even in the cold post-Cold War moment, for example, a lot of academic departments in the United States gained their funding uh, based on Cold War anxieties and concerns. But, you know, that's not the world that we're in anymore. Uh, maybe similar kinds of conflicts going on in this exact historic moment, but they're not exactly the same thing, and they don't have the same ideological weight at all that they did during the Cold War. So um, for that reason, if we want, if people want to flourish today, if they want to be happy, and I think most people, when I ask my students, you know, why are you in class? I, I do it like a chain of whys. I'm like, you know, why are you in the classroom? And they're like, oh, to get a good grade. And then I'm like, well, why do you want to get a good grade? And they're like, to go to law school. And then I'm like, well, why do you want to go to law school? And then they say oh, something, you know, family, money. And then I'm like, why do you want that? Why do you want that? And then they finally go to be happy. And then at that moment, you can kind of intervene and you can say, let's thicken out this notion of happiness. You want to be happy. We can all agree that that's something that you don't want to be happy for any other reason. It's an end. It's not a means. Uh, but then we could think more broadly, what does it mean to be happy? And then I argue to them, uh, you know, in a very philosopher kind of way, but that it means uh, to live a life worth having lived. And that there's not only one version of that. It's, there's a pluralized version of that. We have to make you know, a lot of choices about what it would mean for each of us as individuals to live a kind of fully flourishing life. But um, I think that the, I, in an ideal form, uh, a reformulated version, a de-siloized version uh, of the human sciences, that's my preferred term for the humanities and social sciences, um, would be focused on, you know, the human sciences as a mode of life or as a way of helping people figure out what it would take for them to live a life worth having lived. Um, and how to build a society and societies that will also allow humans to flourish, which uh, in many ways, you know, is a challenge in our historical moment. What are some other topics that you deal with in the book and we haven't mentioned so far? Uh, it has a new theory about what we mean when we talk about things being real or not real. There's a, different modes of the real, different ways in which things can be real. Uh, I often illustrate this with reference to a, uh, a statue, but you could do it with a photograph. This is a real photo of Michel Foucault, but it is not the real Foucault. There is also a, a new theory of meaning. Uh, so a lot of times we talk about what we mean, uh, and we don't know what we mean by meaning. Um, I want to argue that we read the world in, a, in, in terms of its meaning. Uh, but that we're not imprisoned in the so-called prison house of language. But we do tend to interpret the world uh, in terms of its meaningfulness to us. And we don't, it's not just us that do this, but also, I don't know, the ordinary tick uh, or the cat. To be a sentient being in this world is to be interpreting it in some way or another. And communication is one aspect of that. Can you share with us your future projects? I'm working on two projects. The one that is the bigger picture, farther one out, uh, is a new book about power. As theories of power go, in much of the global academy, um, especially uh, at least the Anglophone academy, a particular theory of power influenced by Michel Foucault took dominance in the 1980s, but it, it's quite dated. It doesn't actually capture much of what we would want to do, uh, either explanatorily or in terms of making social change. It's a particular theory that actually works to disempower social change, uh, even in, in its name of suspicion and seeing power in every human interaction. And it also doesn't do much explanatorily because it tends to assume that Uh, everything is power, but if everything is power, what isn't power? And, and you know, it, it just turns us into this model. So that book, which is a, a little bit of a further ways out, is an attempt to re-theorize power for the humanities and social sciences. In the process of writing that book, I just discovered that I had to really deal with Michel Foucault in more detail, in particular because uh, he's the one that people name as the theorist of power. Although, again, you know, The theory that people are using isn't really Foucault. It's Foucault plus a bunch of other people hybridized. Um, and so I'm writing a short book 
uh, at the moment called um, a genealogy of genealogy. Uh, in the humanities and social sciences, we've come to use this word genealogy as a proxy for a particular kind of critical philosophical history that we associate with Foucault. You'll have genealogies of prison, for example. Well, it turns out that the skills and techniques we associate with the term genealogy can be turned back on itself. Scholarly genealogies often are an attempt to, to invalidate something. So you do a scholarly genealogy of, I don't know, um, multiculturalism to show how multiculturalism really sucks. Well, if you do use that genealogical technique on the history of the academic genealogy, it's entangled historically with uh, terrible things like eugenics, and it's produced uh, a, a very misleading story of its own origins and narrative. I'm a big believer in virtuous circles, not vicious circles. So I think a good academic theory should be able to be applied to itself. You know, in the metamodernism book, Social Kinds Theory, is social kind is a social kind and social kinds theory, or the epistemology that I articulate works on itself. So like the theory of knowledge tells you why it's a particularly good theory of knowledge. So those I think of as virtuous circles, but genealogy unfortunately is a vicious circle. If you turn genealogy on itself, uh, instead of proving or validating itself, it actually undercuts itself. Uh, what I wanna suggest is that that operation keeps terminating us in the negative uh, because we have mistake, made, made mistakes about it and we formulated it in a particular way that it can't be anything but devour itself. It's like a snake eating its own tail. Uh, and if we recognize that, uh, we can kind of work our way past it and on toward other kinds of knowledge. This was Professor Jason Ananda Josephson Storm, a great thinker of our time whose work, according to our view, sets the philosophical foundation of humanities and the metaverse. And I'm Elena Giola for Find Out Why. Thank you.